Ten seconds, Super. Kiss my heart, I want you to hold it between your knees. There's never a cop around when you need one. You got a little pretty mail thingy. Well, do you, Bunk? I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet and putting Pepsi. This cat chef is a bad mother. Shut your Welcome to Vintage Video's 12 Days of Christmas, where as a special treat this year, we'll be reviewing all our Patreon poll options for December of 1973, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 50th anniversary of the release of The Seven Ups on December 14, 1973. It was written by Albert Rubin and Alexander Jacobs, based on a story by Sonny Grosso, directed by Philip D'Antoni, and released by 20th Century Fox. During the production of The French Connection, advisor Sonny Grasso shared with producer Dan Tony the story of a case involving mobsters being kidnapped by men posing as police and held for ransom. Dan Tony was also fascinated with the story of the 1950s special unit called The Seven Ups. Dan Tony initially asked French Connection director William Friedkin about helming another chapter, but he was not interested. After the success of the first film, Producer D'Antoni was in a position to offer himself to direct the semi-spinoff. We open on the clock over Grand Central Station and the camera tilts down to the city sidewalk where Roy Scheider as Buddy Minucci, leader of the titular 7-Ups, checks the time on his wristwatch. He's standing outside the Manhattan chock full of nuts we've seen so far in at least two films. Mm -hmm. Can you guys recall either? I, I, I don't know what films they come up with, but it, it repeatedly shows up in the background of this movie. It's, yeah. It's actually like not just Always this, in this, not just this location, other locations. I did not realize how many chock full of nuts there were in this. Manhattan 70s. is chock full of <laughs> chock full of nuts. <laughs> uh, the only one I can remember clearly is Escape from New York. That's right. Which obviously wasn't actually yeah. the chock full of nuts in Manhattan because it's uh it was shot in like Missouri or some shit. It's some like demilitarized zone. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, we also saw it in the background of uh, An Unmarried Woman, which I believe was this actual chock full of nuts. It might also have been in Miss 45. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, think, I think it's possible it was in there. Right neighborhood. Did New Yorkers really eat that many nuts? They were chock full of them. <laughs> so I'm All just right. going to keep going back to that. Every every answer tonight is going to have start with chalk. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of any other situation I where I use either. that word. Like, what, are the what were you guys drawing on the driveway with earlier? What do the teachers use on the classroom? It's dry erase. <laughs> Buddy looks up at a man painting a billboard outside an office building a couple stories off the ground. Two men in a nearby parked van give each other uncomfortable looks. Buddy dips into a Madison Avenue storefront and watches out the window as a man carries a package around a corner. Buddy eyes his friends in the van and precedes the man with the package into an antiques showroom. He watches the package man move upstairs with the manager. In an upstairs office, the store manager exchanges an envelope of cash for the man's package. The man is distracted by the sight of a ladder and cans of paint on a ledge out the office window. Back in the showroom, one of the men from the van, who will come to know as Mingo, another of the 7-Ups, enters carrying a full glass water cooler jug. He asks where to put it, and Buddy intentionally bumps the guy so that he drops the jug and it shatters, spilling water everywhere. Hope it wasn't a deposit bottle. Eh. I think you made that joke last time we shattered one of these. <laughs> I am uh, nothing if not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Nor am I consistent. 
just keeping up with my inconsistencies. Mm. Do you guys recall the last time I was compelled to say the word mango? It was in reference to an alien time zone. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't, but I love the... That's you like the clue? <laughs> Flash Gordon? That's right. Ah! Flash Gordon nice. was due for execution at 2915 Mingo Mean Time <laughs> because of Ming the Merciless. There you go. The people upstairs get nervous about the commotion as an argument erupts downstairs. Buddy shoves Mingo back against more fragile stuff, and as he gets back up, Mingo shoves the salesperson on the floor into a mirror and vase. The men continue arguing loudly until a group of policemen enter to ask what's wrong, and the manager assures them it's no problem they can't work out themselves. They hear a clattering upstairs, and the man who is painting on the ledge, who we'll come to know as Ansel, a third 7-Up, has come in through the window and brought the package from the office downstairs. He tosses it to Buddy. Outside, the second man in the van, who I don't think we ever mention his name, yeah. is Barilli, and he's the fourth and final 7-Up. He has apprehended the package deliverer, and everyone is quickly arrested. I don't understand the game here. Couldn't they have just sent the police in the second the guy with the package entered? Yes. They didn't they need to have. break a bunch of stuff. There's so many things about this movie in general and so many questions that I'll have. But for starters, this guy is carrying this package down the street. Yeah, and just, just walking walk, along. Just walking around with it. Like if he just drops it. <laughs> yeah, or if someone comes up and mugs him. It's yeah. Just, and then when he comes in, they said, where were you? He's like, oh, traffic. It's like, no, you weren't. You were walking. <laughs> you should have had a taxi. Human traffic. Yeah. You should have had a taxi drop you off here. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point, though. I didn't really think about the fact that the commotion that they did didn't actually prove anything. Yeah. And it, it, I, and it feels like they're trying to be the sting, even though the sting hadn't come out yet. So but, it's like they're not ripping that off, but it just feels like they thought they were being really clever. And it's like, there, there's well, nothing I, to this. I don't think because the one guy leaves. Right. And and so I'm like, the other two guys presumably work in the store or, you know, at this front or whatever yeah. it is. I don't think they were going anywhere. It's not like you delayed their departure. Yeah. The police could have just come in and arrested them. Like the guy outside just arrested the person who left after delivering the package. Yeah, they didn't prove anything with yeah. these shenanigans. Well, and even even so, even if the person outside the window was painting and he saw the exchange of money for the package, the package is sealed. They never open it up. Right. And they never say what it is. We don't even find out what it is until the next scene. Yeah. So one of these guys can clearly plead. I don't know what was in that yeah. package. I don't know what it was. I just gave him thousands of dollars in cash yeah. for it. It was that supposed does, to that be. That's not going to hold up. It was long. supposed to be an antique. I didn't yeah. know it would be counterfeit well, that's true. Bills. Yeah, we have an antique shop. And I didn't check. <laughs> I was just like, definitely not bricks again. Here's my money. You're the worst antique salesman in the world. Back at the station, we see the package was a shoebox full of cash, which we just saw paid for in cash meaning it's probably not real cash. Inspector Gilson is impressed by the quality. I couldn't tell this stuff from the real thing, could you? Lieutenant Jerry Haynes complains to Gilson that he doesn't approve of Buddy's methods, by which I assume he means the Three Stooges routine of breaking a bunch of shit in an antique store for no reason. Gilson says he doesn't care what rules Buddy breaks, as long as criminals get sentences, and these two will have a few years each. That's actually where the name The Seven Ups comes from, because this team is assigned to criminals who can expect a minimum sentence of seven years. Never mentioned in the film, though. 
Do they? Yeah, they yeah, do. He they, mentions it. Oh, he does? They, okay. they mention it once. Those two wise guys are going away, and not for any 60 days, years, seven or up. Oh, okay. I was like, that's the name of the movie. Oh. <laughs> we'll throw out, shout out to Ryan George there. Lieutenant Haynes leaves, and Gilson asks Buddy who he plans to target next. As Buddy flips through a wallet full of mugshots, Gilson digs a file out of his desk. Gilson suggests he looks into a bail bondsman named Festa, whose name came up on a wiretap. I don't know why this angers Roy Scheider. Yeah, he seems really upset about it. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, you didn't give him a person yet. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's like diverting your attention. Like at first I thought the point was, he has a specific target in mind and you got interrupted, but you didn't say anybody when he said who you're yeah. going for next. But I think he does have a target in mind because we do see he's got his little folder of names. But is the point of him being upset just to make us think that the inspector is a bad guy? Because that's all it did for me was make me well, think, oh, the Inspector Gilson is like feeding him specific targets because he wants him to lay off certain people. And that's I, not the case at all. I didn't take it as that. I took it as he wants to do his own thing where he investigates and he picks out what he wants to do. Yeah. You would just expect that after he's like, hey, look up this Festa guy that he'd be like, actually, I was thinking since you just asked me mm-hmm. who I was going to pursue next that I would go after this person. But, but it's completely irrelevant that he's upset. Buddy retires to the break room where the three other 7-Ups are hanging out talking football. The blinds above the window have a handwritten message, Beware of snipers, keep shade down, as if this particular division is at risk of assassination, even though, as far as we know, nobody knows who they are. Buddy is annoyed by the inspector's orders and walks forlornly along a river until he meets with a man named Vito waiting on a park bench. It seems like Vito has mafia connections and refers to a childhood friendship with Buddy when they used to skinny dip in this river. Yeah. <laughs> this gross river. Yeah, you can believe we used to swim in this. Buddy asks Vito to cut to the chase and give him the word on the street. Vito tries to give Buddy a tip that Buddy told him about in the first place. The Shylock's expanding like National Bank. Hey, Vito. I told you that. You told me that? I told you to find out what kind of muscle he was using and how heavy and who. Vito admits that information is drying up around him and he worries that his friendship with Buddy is well known. Vito eventually divulges that the muscle and the collector for the Shylock, Max Kalish, is his nephew Bruno. Buddy pulls out his wallet to take some notes and Vito keeps peeking into them. Buddy is reminded to ask about Vito's wife Rose. Apparently she's been having health problems. I don't know, now they think maybe it's TB. It's also never really clear what he has on Vito right. that is prompting him to re- make requests of him to get all this information. I assume it's just they have a history together, and so it's like, hey, I'm going to give you some information I heard on the street, and you're going to offer me some kind of protection in return that I can work in these circles and not get killed by these people. It feels weird that he can offer him anything. Yeah. We cut to Bruno walking into the Hotel Commodore with a briefcase. He goes into room 505 and sits down with his uncle Max Kalish on a couch in a hotel room. It seems Bruno has been out collecting cash and he hands over $11,050 to Mr. Kalish. Kalish updates his ledger with what looks like protection money payments, I would guess, or something along those lines. Something. He even has, re- even has receipts. Yeah. For like. <laughs> yeah, for tax purposes. For the guy at H&R Block. Block full of nuts. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Kalish bags up all the cash and climbs into a car outside to be driven home. Later that night, the car parks outside his house, 
and he leaves the money with his driver Bobby to take care of. A pair of goons we will eventually come to know as Moon and Bo watch the house from a parked car across the street. Moments later, they ring Kalish's doorbell while the man's wife fixes him a drink. Bo, the heavier bespectacled goon, flashes a badge and pushes into the house. We cut to Kalish riding in the back seat later with one of the two goons. He asks them questions about where they're headed, but neither of them answers him. He offers them an unlimited bribe if they'll just answer his questions, but instead they drag him out of the car and punch him unconscious. We cut to Bruno and Kalish's assistant Bobby driving through the city. They're making a handoff and have been instructed to put $100,000 in a briefcase in their trunk and to pass through a local car wash as a ransom payment to get Kalish back. The car wash is one of those mechanized dealies that pulls the car through. They're passing through a series of spinning brushes when two men sneak up and slap handcuffs on the doors between the front and back seat door handles so that no one can escape the car. Then they use a crowbar to pry open the trunk and make off with the ransom payment. Bobby and Bruno are helpless to stop them in the car, and by the time they realize what's going on, the men have taken the money and escaped. We cut right to Mr. Kalish being released into a huge gravel lot. The kidnappers drive away and leave him here with his mouth taped shut and his hands taped together. Out on the street, we see Buddy walking the old neighborhood and getting warm greetings from family friends. He's waved into a barber shop by an old friend who forces him into a chair. It seems he has info to share. He tells Buddy that there's more guns than usual on the street these days, and to please be careful. Buddy tries to tip the man on his way out, and the guy waves off the cash but ultimately accepts it. We cut to the New York Botanical Gardens. A teacher leads a class of children on a field trip. Moon, one of the kidnappers from earlier, with what looks like burn scars around his mouth, walks past the class. So, uh, did you, uh, figure out where these burn scars came from? No. So I was looking up this guy. Uh, the actor's name is uh, Richard Lynch. The IMDb trivia says that um, back in like 67, he uh, he took some acid. and uh, The wrong him, kind of acid? The wrong kind of. He well, no. poured it down his face? No, no, no. He, LSD. He took okay. some LSD <laughs> okay. and then lit himself on fire in oh, Central God. Park. <laughs> then I guess he managed to, to extinguish himself and uh, he went on to do a bunch of like anti-drug type uh educational stuff but um it's kind of crazy yeah do you guys recall the last time we had someone take drugs and set themselves on fire one of our actors sounds like something gary Busey would do <laughs> richard pryor there you go <laughs> oh yeah i thought you were Jeez. richard pryor moon meets with Vito and gives the guy his share of the ransom money it sounds like moon is also here for another name to kidnap but Vito says they need to take their time and to not be so greedy we cut to the office of festa the bail bondsman the one Gilson put Buddy on the trail of. Festa leads his client, Tony, to an attorney outside the courthouse across the street. I love that this is all on location, though, because we follow him out the door of the office mm -hmm. and then directly across the street to the courthouse. So they actually, like, locked in these two locations. Buddy watches Festa walking back to his office, and he gets intercepted by Moon and Bo, the kidnapper with a badge from Kalish's abduction. A cop on the street sees the arrest in progress and actually helps the kidnappers force Festa into their car, assuming this is all above board. I can't imagine he would have cared later when it turned out. It's like, oh no, those were bad guys too. And it's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> well, I will say this. Festa at least puts up a fight. Right, yeah. Like, the other guy was like, you are police. I will do as you say. Yeah. Uh, do you have a warrant? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't have any kind of papers or documentation here to show me? Yeah. You're just telling me to get into a car? Uh but yeah, he puts up a big fight. And, yeah. But you think Roy Scheider would have some follow-ups like 
did you you know of i mean he kind of does yeah because he stops the cop and he says who were those guys why did you help them load someone into the car mm-hmm. and he says they're from the da's office so he saw the badge clocked it as legit and was like da is above my pay grade i'm walking the beat here so here you go here's your criminal we cut to buddy and Vito outside their former high school he asks Vito about festa Vito doesn't seem to have much information for buddy so buddy calls him out on withholding a huge tip that he happens to already know about how come you're not telling me about the Catello funeral? Look at this guy. I'm not going to tell you about it. Give me a chance, will you? Vito complains about all the pressure he's under, and Buddy plays an invisible violin in the air to shut him up. This relationship is very one way. Right. Yeah. And and so I don't get why... I, know, I, I mean, I guess I do understand why Vito is participating in this in the end. But sure. But I don't understand what Roy Scheider did to convince him to give all this information up originally. Well, because yeah. even after we figure out what we figure out at the end, right, what, what is it that he would have to offer him? Mm-hmm. Like, as, you know, as a police. Are you saying what does Buddy think Vito is getting out of this? Yeah. What does he have to offer him? I mean, I guess he doesn't arrest his friend. Yeah, I yeah. think that's, that's all it of, is. It's, it's just immunity. That's a super shitty thing to do. But that's a stool pigeon thing. Like, th- there's... All, every detective movie has the guy on the corner who has the information and he gives it up in exchange for if I get brought in you tell them he's an informant for me you let him go yeah I guess or we'll put him like plead him down to the lowest possible charges and get him out on the street as soon as possible but as far as them being old friends seems like he treats him like pretty crappily yeah yeah but also Vito is like I have a huge tip but you're gonna have to ask for it specifically mm-hmm. and know most of the details so that I don't feel like I gave you anything also, we don't hear him learn about this Catella funeral thing. Like, yeah, it seems weird to me that he's like, how come you're not going to tell me about this thing that I haven't told the audience about? Ha <laughs> we're both withholding information. We cut to the Lucia brothers funeral home as a crowd grows on the sidewalk in preparation for the funeral. We see Buddy and Barilli surveilling the gathering from an upstairs apartment across the street. And again, they have these two locations because we the camera moves through the room that they're mm-hmm. in and looks out the window at the funeral home across the street. But they stupidly keep lighting cigarettes in the window. They do all kinds of dumb shit in here. Just standing directly in the window the whole time, just staring down at these guys. What are you, Burt Reynolds? You go to the sharky school of surveilling? (laughs) They seem to be waiting for someone to show up, and eventually he does. Big Bill the Enforcer, who I don't think we'll ever mention again in the whole film. (laughs) Like They're like, oh, here he is, the big guy. And it's like, that's it. That's the only shot of Big Bill. They call around to their other eyes in the neighborhood, but it sounds like they have the best view of what's going on. Kalish leads a meeting inside the funeral home of all the family heads, warning them that it's time they solve this kidnapping ring before they're all targeted. Festa's son doesn't want to take any drastic action while his father is still being held captive. Another of the mobsters points out that these men introduce themselves as police, and if they are, then they can't rightly fight back either. Vito knocks on the door and enters to remind the men that there is in fact a funeral today, and the family would like to get things underway. But one of these people is Cotella. Yeah. So is he like the patriarch of the family and one of his sons is dead? Or I, did I this thought, guy's dad die? I thought nobody's actually dead. And they just arranged this funeral as a reason for all the families to get together without suspicion. Now, I, I think somebody did die. Okay. But Yeah, but we don't but the, see someone die. Yeah. We don't specify how he's related to this Cotella. Ansel from the 7-Ups, posing as one of the limo drivers outside the funeral home, leans down to adjust his sock and the wire he's wearing is hanging out of his pant leg. One of the mafiosos notices and heads inside to report the observation. 
The drivers are all summoned into the funeral home, but the one wearing a wire tries to hang back until they insist. So this is also a very frustrating thing because Roy Shatter keeps trying to talk to him on the radio. It's like you can see that he's engaged. At the <laughs> yeah, moment. it's like he's around other people. What are you yeah. supposed to have him do? Just go, uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just what are you talking about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How would you say no? Yeah, How would like, you say no if there's nobody around? Just give me a big thumbs up in the air yeah. and face the window while you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Go, yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, what I would do is I would go up to all the guys, hey, you got a cigarette? Yeah, sure. When he hands it to me, go, nope. <laughs> no way. <laughs> About six of them. Why? It's just like, you want, <laughs> you're asking me for six cigarettes? Nope. <laughs> We hard cut to Ansel being dragged into the back room and beaten mercilessly. They pull a gun off him and all his wires and broadcasting equipment. They assume this man is part of the kidnap and ransom operation and consider offering him back as a bargaining chip to get Festa. So up until the point they rip this stuff off, wouldn't the guys be hearing what is happening? Because I thought his mic was always open. I think what fell out of his pant leg was the mic that was attached to his chest. So they weren't. So they e- aren't they hearing hear. this. They're not hearing. Well, they they would hear you, some rustling. Well, that's what they? I was going to say. You would hear something. You would hear. But I, I mean, I think they do. I think they do hear rustling. But they, so, they, and they also see like mafiosos strong arming him into the funeral home, and it's like yeah. anyway. Well, yeah. What should we get point, for lunch? This is the point at which they walked into like the kitchen, and they're not looking out the window anymore. Right. And one of them's like just pouring coffee over his hands like yeah. an idiot. Like what the fuck <laughs> are you doing? <laughs> Wake up, guys! This? Pour this into your mouth if you're that tired. <laughs> they assume this man is part of the kidnap and ransom operation, and consider offering him as a bargaining chip to get Festa back. Across the street. Buddy and his partner wonder where their friend has disappeared to. The funeral procession is underway, and Mingo is sent after them. Inside the funeral home, Kalish tells Catella, relative of the deceased, that the plan they've just put together is their only option. They load the unconscious, wired cop into the trunk of a car. Instead of covertly tailing the procession, Mingo drives past the line and then stops to look at each driver before radioing back to Buddy that Ansel is not driving any of these cars. Which they should have been able to see had they been watching people get into the cars. I'm sure Ansel had an assigned car. Right. And they would have seen, that's not him getting into the car. Also, did Ansel just call them and be like, hey, do you guys need a driver for that funeral tomorrow? Like, just like cold calling (laughs) that he's going to be a funeral procession driver? Why wouldn't they use the family for this? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, it's a funeral home. I'm sure they have their own drivers. Yeah. How did he? How do they insert him into the driver rotation? And what good oh, are, is that going to do? You know what, though? I know how they did. Because Vito is the, quote unquote, undertaker. He runs the funeral home. Oh, okay. So, so that's he, how they snuck Ansel. Yeah. Oh. They, that, I'm, that, then wire that, the cars and wire is, everything else. Don't yeah. wire a person. But what are the other guy's painting skills? How did they get <laughs> That was the same guy. That was Ansel. He's the driver, the painter. He's a Renaissance man. Ansel Adams. Yeah, exactly. He's a literal photographer. Photographer. Yeah. Yeah. He takes pictures of his paintings after he's done. (laughs) I painted this picture of this landscape and then photographed it. (laughs) Ansel Adams has never actually been outside. Yeah. He's just he just painted trees and then photographed them. He's really, really good at at both. (laughs) This is an excellent photograph of that excellent painting you did. Buddy decides to check into the funeral home just as a car is coming out of the garage. The camera follows it, so we know it's the one that Ansel is tucked into the trunk of, and Buddy and his friend pursue the vehicle. 
Catella is driving the car quite slowly, and Buddy and his friend are following very closely. Buddy notices another carload of goons right behind them, so he turns to lose the tail and then tries to reconnect with the car taking Ansel away. The car is driven to the same local car wash so that the man in the trunk can be returned to his fellow kidnapper police. Yeah, uh, I thought that this was an interesting play. It makes no sense. Because you're just putting this guy's life on the line. And also you're like, I'm going to fill this trunk with leverage and then give it back to my enemies. (laughs) They have no reason to give you back the person that they took hostage. We get so many dramatic interior shots of this car wash, too. It's like, I feel like they they filmed so much footage of this car wash. It's like, we got to use it. It looks so good, guys. I mean, I guess it's meant as like a message, but it doesn't make sense to give them their man back while they still have your ally hostage. Right. This time, no one. Unless that's the exchange. We gave you him back. Now you give. Yeah, I think that is the point. But it's like. You have to make that arrangement before you hand him over. Yeah. Unless they expect it to be like an honor among thieves things where it's like, okay, you know what? You caught our guy and you gave him back to us. That means we owe you your guy back. Right. But they never handcuff the doors this time. They just let him pass through and the driver is just as confused as we are. On the other side, though, we see Moon drying the car with a rag and then he sneaks into it and pushes a gun into Coltella's neck to steal the whole vehicle. It skids directly across the alley into a warehouse where Joe Spinell as Toradano slams the warehouse gate closed and races after them to inspect the delivery with the kidnappers. Coltella, the man in charge of driving this car, explains the plan to the kidnappers. Listen, fellas, you're making a mistake. We never make Don't you know who I am? I came to make a deal for Festa. No deal. Coltella drops the keys, trying to open the trunk, and then tries to run for it but catches several shots in the back. The kidnappers blast open the trunk with a shotgun, killing Ansel inside. He rises from the trunk and then collapses bleeding, hanging half out of it. Well, and and Moon kind of gestures to Bo, like when they're when he's about to pick up the keys and open up the trunk himself, he's like, uh, maybe we shouldn't... Like, this is a bomb or yeah, something. Yeah, like we shouldn't... It's a trap of some yeah, sort. Yeah, we shouldn't stand so close to this thing. The bloodied cop rises from the trunk and the kidnappers get back in their own car and leave just as Buddy and his partner force open the door to the warehouse. Toradano opens another gate for the kidnappers to flee through, but he's grabbed and patted down by Buddy and Barilli. Buddy notices the wounded Catello and dead Ansel in the trunk. They keep Toradano at gunpoint and lower Ansel back into the trunk. Moon and Bo skid out of the warehouse and Buddy is hot on their heels. What follows is a long high-speed chase through the city. The villains remind us how terrible they are by blasting full speed down a street full of children. And then Buddy reminds us how terrible he is by doing the exact same thing. <laughs> okay. Why children – I get it. The, the street was barricaded off so the children can play. But a car comes roaring by, so the kids run out of the street screaming. And when the car goes back, all right, back to the All right, game, game on. on. <laughs> Everybody back into the street instantly. Oh, my God. I was like, why did you get back in the street? And why did you take longer to get out the second time? Because the way it's edited, it looks like – the kids aren't going to get out of Buddy's yeah, way. Yeah, He doesn't even nope. break nope. at all. He doesn't nope. let off the gas. No. We get shot after shot of the cars ramping off of uneven intersections where it felt like the filmmakers were just excited to have a street blocked off and thought it looked more interesting than well, it does. That's the interesting thing about this chase is like, I think it's a miracle that this number of streets in Manhattan would be... the passable at mm-hmm. this rate and i know that they're weaving in and out of some traffic they're probably just on one street doing the same well, jump over and over and over again p- perhaps but what i'm saying is in in 
within the movie, yeah. like in the world of the movie. That, that it's that so wide open. That there's this much mm-hmm. space for them to just be going 90 miles an hour through Manhattan down all these different yeah. streets. But these also aren't bullet jumps. They're They're like four or five inches off the street yeah. jumps where it's like the camera literally has to be scraping the ground for you to even notice that they got any air. There is something special, I think, about 70s car chases just yeah. because of the crazy suspension on these cars yeah. that, mm-hmm. you know, these cars are just bouncing, bouncing as every time they hit the pavement. <laughs> I I found this car chase to be very exciting. Uh, I was like actually like sweating. My hands were like sweating. I was like, ah, because I... Cause, the first of the kids. Yeah, but, yeah, the kids, but, obviously. But just all like the really, I love all the really low angle shots of the yeah. of the street, and and it doesn't look sped up. It looks like they're no. Really, I, th- I think they are driving that speed. Yeah, like that. and so it's like it's very impressive as far as just driving. Yeah. Um, but I got really mad when he's like, "Why aren't you calling this in? I am in pursuit of a yeah. blue sedan. He needs a lot more backup. Streets. Yeah, a lot." Eventually, the baddies do enough damage in the chase to draw the attention of another police car, but the marked cop car is quickly taken out of commission. More cops form a shitty roadblock, and the guys shoot right through it. It's like, why'd you put a huge car width seam in between the two vehicles you're blocking the road with? Yeah, you needed to block the road. The the cops that are also blocking the road are standing on the cars yeah like, and one of them the almost gets hit by the car that gets knocked they back they do because and one of them literally rides the car yeah. as it spins around he's like hanging onto the door and i'm like jesus like, in any other movie you guys all run out of the way at the last mm-hmm. second buddy chases the kidnappers out onto a country road where they try to hide in front of a greyhound bus as buddy drives past it moon fires a shotgun into the hood of buddy's car and blasts it off the cars bash each other back and forth along the road until Buddy is forced off to the right lane and crashes right into the back of a parked 18-wheeler. Oh, this crash. Mm-hmm. He this, manages to oh. dive to the floor of the car before the vehicle is basically decapitated by the trailer. My heart just sunk when he hit this thing. Like, yeah. I realize that the movie is not over. He's not dead. But, like, the whole top of this car is underneath the semi. It stops instantly, too. Mm-hmm. It's not like... There's a little bit of give. It just instantly done stops. And it's a real car crash. Oh, yeah. It's like a sardine can where the whole whole front is just squished to the back, the top Uh, top half of the car. I mean, like, was this remote control? Like, how do you do this? Yes, it was remote control. There was not a person in this car. Stunt coordinator Bill Hickman, who also plays the other driver, Bo, in this chase, designed this wreck as an homage to the fatal 1967 accident that killed Jane Mansfield. Oh, my God. Wow. Her driver plowed into the back of a stopped tractor trailer, killing himself, Mansfield, and her attorney. But her three children in the back seat, including Law & Order actress Mariska Hargitay, survived with minor injuries. Oh, God. That feels like a weird thing to do an homage to. But that's also why they have, like, those tractor trailers now have that bumper section that, that, bar that completes that goes down. the... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's called a Mansfield bar. It's literally wow. named after Jane Mansfield. But the driving that Bo does in this entire, like, it's it's intense. Like, yeah, he's doing is, all his own driving. This it's is an surreal. amazing sequence. And, yeah. like, he deserves a lot of credit for and how great this is. I think in some of it, Moon sitting next to him is actually in the car Terrifying. with Bo driving yeah. like this. Because he looks like, fuck, 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 like, as they're going around corners and stuff. And, and like, Bo is like Mama Fratelli in the car chase. He's just, like, one hand. Yeah, he's, like, wheel, eyes like... are barely open. <laughs> 
We cut to a mob of press asking questions of Inspector Gilson and the commissioner, and it seems like they didn't give this actor lines, so he's like barely responding. Yeah. Uh, Buddy, Barilli, and Mingo are waiting in a hospital hallway for the results of a surgery, and the first man rolled out is Coltello. Looks like he might make it, so they will guard him here and question him later. The second patient rolled out is Ansel, under a blanket. He's officially gone, and his wife is calling to ask about his condition, so Buddy takes the call. In the hallway, the commissioner is asked if Officer Ansel was a dirty cop, and weirdly he blurts out a huge department secret. Was was Officer Ansel ever involved in anything a little bit underhanded, a little bit unscrupulous? Of course not. He wouldn't have been in the 7-Ups of the end. What's he doing dead now? What's the 7-Ups? The 7-Ups are a very highly secretive investigative unit within the police department. Or I guess they were. (laughs) Yeah. We cut to Buddy's call with Janie Ansel, and he reminds us again that he's a terrible person by saying everything is okay, and he'll be by in an hour to see her. It's like, I get that you don't say, he's dead. Mm-hmm. He's dead and you're at home alone. Happy Friday. Yeah. You say, we don't know. We don't know anything. The doctors haven't let us know. I'll come by and talk to you as soon as I know something. Don't say, he's fine. He's doing a, an Irish jig in front of me right now. Inspector Gilson and Lieutenant Jerry Haynes, the man who resented Buddy's methods from the start, drag Buddy into a closet to ask what he knows about these supposed mob kidnappings. He denies any knowledge of the scheme, and as far as we've seen, he doesn't know anything about it. He hasn't been let in on this process. Turns out, the other cops on the force have heard the rumors and assumed that the alleged cops performing these ransoms are the 7-Ups themselves, especially since the kidnappers seem to specifically strike mobsters on this team's hit list. Buddy is furious that he has lost a man and now has to navigate an investigation of his own team, with not enough hours left over in a day to track down the men responsible. We cut to some docks where Moon is chopping up wood as Vito walks up with some news. The guy you iced was a cop. (laughs) Okay, so he was a cop. Vito says their partnership is over, but Moon doesn't care that the guy was a cop. Vito recommends they release Festa before they all end up dead. He knows that Buddy won't stop coming after them, and if they don't cease all operations now, his childhood friend will kill him too. I really like this actor that plays Moon. Mm. uh, Yeah, he's great. He's amazing. He reminds me of like a cross between Willem Dafoe and Anthony Hopkins. He's just got that creepy factor. Yeah. um, That just, it just, every face he makes and he's talking in the scene like, I don't care that it was a cop. Let's keep going. Yeah, exactly. He's just a maniac. Moon asks for Buddy's name, and Vito says no deal and walks away. Back at the station, they've kept Toradano on ice and have some questions. Roy Scheider tongues his cheek obnoxiously and then delivers the corniest line of the film. Unless he's chewing tobacco, but he's talking normally at the beginning of the scene, and we don't see him put anything in his mouth. So it looks like he's literally just pushing his tongue all the way into his cheek. Now look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Change the line in some direction Mm -hmm. don't say the line that cartoon gangsters say they threaten to torture him for information and toradano shows them his horrifically scarred hands as proof that torture doesn't work on him this isn't his first rodeo look at my hands i've been here before do what you gotta do i didn't talk then and i ain't talking now you son of a bitch! Okay, what about your feet? <laughs> uh, what about 
literally anywhere else. Like, about, okay, about, your hands are fine. He's like, all right, we're going to get this car battery and hook up each one of these things to your testicles. Yeah. And then we're going to go like, from there. Torture doesn't work because if the person doesn't know anything, they will make up information until you're happy and stop torturing them. But you can't just be like, well, I'm just not going to say the things I know because it's like, yeah, but then they'll just keep torturing you. But it turns out that they basically, they're like, ah, he called our bluff. Let's go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy doesn't, uh, he doesn't like torture. Somebody picks up his leather jacket and he walks out. <laughs> or he either doesn't like it or he really does like it, which doesn't help. Yeah. He's just like, well, it's no fun if you don't care. Bye. Later, Buddy and the surviving 7-Ups walk back into the hospital to speak with Cotello, the guy who drove around with Ansel in his trunk. They decide to torture the bedridden Cotello by removing his oxygen lines until he gives up some names. Weirdly, though, the guy is hesitant to cough up the names of people who kidnapped his allies and shot him in the warehouse. Yeah. But he he's, doesn't know them. Right, but he's not protecting his family. He's protecting the guys who are holding his partner ransom. What is he going to say, though? He can say, I don't Whatever know. Whatever information they he can. They, they told us to make a drop at this car wash. Uh, they said is, they were cops. Yeah, this is where they, they took him. Maybe he thinks this is a test and that if he talks that these people will kill him because they're a part of the kidnapping operation but eventually he realizes that they're going to kill him if he doesn't say anything coltello says that everything was max's idea but he takes this to mean that kalish orchestrated the killings not that he dreamed up the scheme to avenge them that night the seven ups disable kalish's security team across the street and break into his home they wake up kalish and his wife at gunpoint and demand to know who shot ansel and kalish swears up and down he has no idea who they were Buddy's partner bashes open a vase from a nightstand and threatens to cut Mrs. Kalish with it. Kalish finally fills in Buddy on the mobsters who've all been kidnapped around town. Oh, Festa, Festa, and, and, and Spinelli, and, and Rosetti, and Rico, and me. The three seven-ups head out for a diner for a late-night meal, and something occurs to Buddy. He flips through his wallet of mugshots, the men he intends to track down, and the list matches up with the one Kalish just fed him. Yeah, it's just like... This is a list that you thumb. You have a little black book of you names. You didn't remember it? You didn't remember any of the names on your list? It didn't sound familiar the second he started saying them. He remembers now that when he was hassling Vito for leads by the river that the guy kept sneaking peeks at his wallet, so he must be connected with the alleged cops doing these kidnappings, which makes sense because Vito's already connected to two different sides of this war. Yeah. So now he's on teams with everybody. But wouldn't Vito know who these people are already? Yeah, Vito knows. But then why does he need Roy Scheider's little black book of names? He needs to know the, the, the best mobster targets because he wants to frame the seven ups. Uh, uh, is, is that his goal? I think so. Oh, I never figured that yeah, out. Yeah, because at the end he's so impassioned about, I never did anything to hurt you personally. I think I think he was just looking for the most the, valuable, the, the most valuable target. Yeah. But but then to Richard's point that wouldn't he be aware of that as a member of the, the criminal? You would think so because I figured he gave him all of these names in the first place. Yeah. But maybe maybe it's just confirming that he gave me the names of the guys he did the most reconnaissance on. The guys that he knew were the target. So the guys that he told me about are the guys that he's also hitting. Right. Yeah. Or maybe he thought he was actually helping his friend. By like, oh, you're after that guy? Well, I'm going to get him kidnapped and ransomed for $100,000 so he has less to work with and it's easier for you to, to yeah. nail him. Or he's just really uncreative. It's like, who should I kidnap? <laughs> What's a name? 
Buddy slides his wallet to the floor in a huff and somehow makes it loud enough to draw the attention of the entire diner. It's like they must have added some sound to this because it's just a leather wallet. It would have mm-hmm. just hit the ground and done nothing. Hours later, Vito arrives to meet with Buddy at a train station. Buddy asks if he knows anything about Toradano. When he claims not to, Buddy asks him to look into it, and Vito doesn't seem excited to comply. He also seems unable to speak, and Buddy senses his trepidation and tells Vito to get some rest and call him tomorrow. The next day, the DA's office officially releases Toradano, and a taxi drops him off at a house on the edge of town. Well, and, and Roy Scheider makes it clear, or, you know, Buddy, I, I don't know why I called him Roy Scheider, but it, anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, he makes it clear to Vito that they have Toradano, and it makes it sound like Toradano's going to give something up. Right. Like, like, oh, he's talking to us, and, and we're going to use him. Right. Because he's got information. So Buddy waits inside Toradano's house and then shoves him around at gunpoint, ultimately locking him in a closet. With Toradano locked up, Buddy waits with the rest of his team sitting in a truck outside, and they watch for the first person to reach out to him. Within minutes, Moon and Bo roll up and park to walk to the house. Stupidly, 7-Up Barilli gets out of the van after Moon passes, never considering the possibility of a second kidnapper, and everybody is quickly shooting at each other. Bo is knocked over by a shotgun blast toward the neighboring train tracks, and Moon spins to shoot Barilli with his revolver. Buddy comes flying out the door and chases Moon on foot across the train tracks. It's a cat and mouse chase through a junkyard, and Moon hides in the back of a rotted out van. A bit of graffiti in this junkyard says Sonny, as an apparent shout out to Sonny Grosso, technical advisor to the film and the basis of Roy Scheider's character, Buddy. Moon peeks out to take an ill-advised shot at Buddy, and Buddy returns fire, emptying his revolver into the man, killing him. And we cut forward probably a couple days to Buddy meeting with Vito by the same river. Vito promises Buddy a huge tip, but Buddy tells him it's too late. Too late? For what? For you and me. He explains that he knows Toradano was pals with the kidnappers, and that Vito was covering for them. Vito thinks it's enough that he did his best to protect the cops. He did it for the money to pay for his wife's health issues, though he has been dressing fancier and fancier throughout the film Yeah, and sports a new gold watch for this scene, which he's like checking his time. He's like, hey, you're late, buddy. Buddy tells Vito that he isn't here to arrest him, but word travels fast, and when the mobsters find out about his ties to the kidnappers, he might be getting some new cement shoes to clash with his watch. Buddy leaves Vito here panicking beside the river and ignores the man's desperate pleading for help. Vito's dialogue is literally turned all the way down, but we can still hear the bustling city around them to imply how little Buddy cares about Vito's upcoming problems. The end. It feels pretty shitty and cold to do this to somebody who was in theory a friend. I know that his buddy got killed mm-hmm. in this. And that he you was know. protecting the people doing it. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking that it wasn't it wasn't Vito's fault necessarily that that guy got shot. Like it wasn't his fault that he got dragged in and beat up and put in a trunk and then these kidnappers decided to open a trunk right. and shoot it open. And I know that they don't really know that, but I just feel like condemning this guy to, to, to being killed is a little mm-hmm. much. I think it's strange how deep into the gray area we are with the the entire plot of this movie. There are bad guys and there are different bad guys. Mm-hmm. The different bad guys are kidnapping the bad guys yeah. and taking money from the bad guys and giving it to the bad guys. And it's like, I so far I don't care. Mm-hmm. Now what? <laughs> Some cops wandered in and one of them was an idiot and got shot because he was stupid in front of a bunch of mobsters. Okay, still don't care. And that's everything that happens in the whole movie. 
it's bad guys ripping off bad guys. So there's there there's not a there's no way a hero and, can insert himself. In well, that situation. And, and then the cops not doing great things repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we never know what Festa did or what they were going to start uncovering yeah. on him. Somebody mentioned him on a wiretap, and it's like, yeah, he's a bail bondsman. Yeah. These are criminals. They need bail bondsmen. <laughs> the, the movie it isn't super long, but it would have been nice to have them start the investigation on Festa and give us like a little bit of like they're doing actual police work. Yeah. Other than just like he's gone. And Yeah, he's been taken, and we never see him again for the mm-hmm. rest of the movie. Yeah. He doesn't get returned. Exactly. And uh, – and that's never. Where is he? <laughs> Where is Festa? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Bermuda Triangle. We've been watching these these Uncle other Festa. bad guys this yeah. whole time. I have no idea where they're storing this guy. I assume somewhere on that shipyard where maybe they're keeping Moon him in the working. in the caves on the beach. With with Rowan, Wicker Man was Wicker that Man. long ago. Uh. <laughs> it's just Chuck Festa. Chuck Festa. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> That's what he was gonna say, right? Yeah, Ansel. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of a, a lot of loose ends, and I I don't feel like we had enough cases with the Seven Ups to warrant them being the good guys. Yeah, that's that's the biggest problem is that are you a good guy if you're protecting bad guys from other bad guys? Mm-hmm. It's like I don't I don't know. I know one of your friends got killed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry your friend got killed because he was dancing around in wires. Honestly, what I was hoping was going to happen was once Ansel got killed and they learn about the kidnappings that Buddy was going to go to the mob and and make a deal with them. Like, we're not doing these kidnappings, but we want to find out who is. Yeah. Let's set up another kidnapping. Yeah. We're with you. Let's have Roy Scheider pop out of this trunk with a gun. Yeah. And just fuck everybody up. Yeah. And then and then when Roy Scheider pops out, it's Vito. Right. And it's like, oh, I no. knew it was you, Vito. <laughs> you broke my heart. Bang, bang, bang. Like, do something interesting because – I guess the the note of finality for Roy Scheider when he says it's over for you and me in that yeah. his, their unit's going to be broken up because anyone who could anyone who was involved is either dead so like Moon and Bo are dead uh, and Vito will soon be dead yeah so there's and I guess when this ev- investigation occurs with the Seven Ups they'll just be broken up will they be. Well, he, do they do anything the, wrong? The chief at least says that they're going to be like grounded. Like they're they, grounded until they can prove that these guys weren't the ones doing the kidnappings, and they yeah, weren't the ones yeah. doing the kidnapping. So I feel like all that would happen was they'd be like, "All right, let's get a new Ansel," <laughs> and then you guys go back to work. I wish whatever they had, the fuck you do. I wish they had demonstrated them being an actual like slick elite team, right? Uh, but you know, like you said at the beginning, they just fumbled around a lot. And got a box. Yeah. And then it felt like a half assed, like uh, a Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. They did a bad job of surveilling. They did a bad job of putting a wire on this guy. They they just kind of did a bad job of everything. How do you fuck up a wire that bad that it's hanging out of a pant leg? Like, there's a battery that goes on your chest and there's a mic that goes in your lapel. That's like eight, eight inches, 10 inches. Why is the wire long enough to hang out of your pants? Yeah. It's just like, we, I get it that. That there can be a storyline where they made this tiny mistake and it and it screwed everything up for them, but they, at no point did they demonstrate that they were this elite team. Yeah. And why were they surveilling the funeral at all? Because they just surveilled these mob guys. I, I guess it's just what they do. 
But yeah, th- that that whole sequence is so half-assed because it's like we don't know why they're surveilling it, like you said. We also have no idea how they found out about it because the one guy who was supposed to be giving Roy Scheider tips this whole time didn't give him this. He just knew about it mm-hmm. from a scene that we weren't party to. And so he's like, how come you didn't tell me about the Catella funeral? And he's like, because I, I was just I was going to do it. And it's like, I don't know who told me about it, though. Anyway, we're going to be there. Why? I, It's not important. As long as my friend dies and then we have someone to avenge yeah. later. And Roy Scheider's warned about there being a bunch of guys with guns, like yeah. jumpy, trigger-happy guys with guns. It's like, okay, this is going to come into play, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish that instead of turning him down, they had just left the volume up and Vito had said, hey, remember when I didn't tell you about that funeral where your friend got killed for being mm. an idiot? Because that was dumb of you guys to go with no goal in mind. <laughs> It's very. It's just a very frustrating movie because I I I like I like the way it's filmed. Uh, I like Roy Scheider and I like a good gritty gritty cop drama. But other than the car chase, which I thought was excellent in, it, for me, I I yeah. really enjoyed the car chase. Um, but that was the most exciting part of the film. That was otherwise just very kind of confusing and yeah. then falls flat. Yeah. I think bit. I liked a lot of the car chase. The stuff that that bored me. It's when we're seeing the same shot like 12 times in a row of car goes two inches off the ground. The next car goes two inches off the ground. The first car goes two inches off the ground. The second, go- And it's like, I get it. I get it. You had to use every take of this because mm-hmm. it looks so cool. But it's not fun to watch a string out of this. I liked the car chase. I thought it was great. I liked it a lot more than the French Connection one. Sure. Um, thumbs up, though. I give it a thumbs up just for that car chase. Yeah, there's there's yeah. cool enough action here. Um, and I and as much as you joked about like way too many inserts in the in the uh, car wash moments, yeah, I actually really loved that stuff. It's so menacing. Yeah. And I don't know why. I mean, it's the score is wash. very saturated yeah. too. Oh, oh yeah. We we also I didn't mention it at the time, but when the, the big reveal that Vito is the mastermind, right? There's this wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I was like, what was that music for? Is that is that Vito? I don't. Now I'm worried that I don't know who this is. Yeah, what's happening? <laughs> The director here was Philip D'Antoni, who, as we said, was a producer for The Bullet and The French Connection. This is his only director credit. The writer here for the screenplay was Albert Rubin, who has mostly television writing credits that I wasn't super familiar with. Alexander Jacobs has the other screenplay credit. He previously wrote John Borman's Lee Marvin vehicle, Point Blank. He also followed this script with a more direct French Connection sequel, The French Connection 2. The story here came from Sonny Grosso. He's a real-life cop, and he's the basis for the film's Buddy Minucci. He was also the basis for Buddy Russo in 1971's The French Connection, and both buddies were portrayed by actor Roy Scheider to insinuate a direct connection between the films. The French go, Connection? The French Connection between the films. <laughs> they even go out of their way to avoid mentioning Buddy Minucci's surname in this film. I don't think anyone says Minucci once. Yeah. It's just... In the, the credits or something? <laughs> yeah, bite, bite the Banooch, pal. <laughs> what was, was that from? <laughs> I don't know. I want to say that was from uh, Pinball Summer or something, where you're just like, yeah. everyone keeps saying, bite the Banooch. It's like, right. that's not a thing. <laughs> bite the Banooch, pal. Was that the one with the, what was the wet t-shirt contest one? That was, well, that I, was... watched, I watched one called Hot T-shirts that you guys didn't for a minisode. Was there a wet t-shirt contest? Oh, they, they do a car wash. Is that in Pinball Summer? Yeah. Okay, then yeah. I think that is the one. And they call the the fire the fireman yeah, out, and that's they, the they one. bring three different centuries worth of fire department vehicles out. 
The real Sonny also appears in this film as the man delivering a box of counterfeit cash to the antique shop at the start of the film. So that's that's Sonny Grasso, the guy mm. that both both movies are, are based on his experiences. He was also a technical advisor on The Godfather and Cruising and a producer on Pee-wee's Playhouse. He also passed away four days after we dropped our first episode of the podcast. The music here came from Don Ellis. He also composed something called Moon Zero Two that I think I should see just based on the title, as well as French Connections 1 and 2. Ellis got the job after a previous score from Johnny Mandel was rejected, but Mandel's score was eventually released by Entrada Records in 2007. The cinematographer here was Urs Führer. <laughs> Urs Führer. He was the DP on Shafts 1 and 2 and Sounder Part 2. I didn't realize there was a Sounder 2. Did, did he also do the Rural Juror? Yeah, Urs Führer for the Rural Juror. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the editor here was John C. Horger. He previously cut Cold Turkey, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and much later, 11 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. The other credited editor, <laughs> credited editor of Rural Juror, <laughs> was Stephen A. Rotter. This was his first feature editing credit. He later cuts Night Moves, Missouri Breaks, next season, The World According to Garp, and later, The Right Stuff, Ishtar, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, My Blue Heaven, the Lohan Parent Trap, What Women Want, Enchanted, and many, many more. Roy Scheider played Buddy, 7-Up. He's definitely best known as Sheriff Brody in Jaws 1 and 2. In 79, he's in All That Jazz. We've already mentioned he plays basically the same character in The French Connection. And he is Captain Nathan Bridger on Sequest 2032. And then he takes over the role of Haywood Floyd in 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And I think both of those last two credits, he has pet dolphins that can talk. Yeah. Victor Arnold played Barilli. We've seen him now as Charlie in Shaft, Officer Kendall in The First Deadly Sin, and Roundin' Bush in Wolfen. He makes appearances in All the Right Moves and a movie I love called Tree's Lounge, which is actually written and directed by Steve Buscemi. Jerry Leon played Mingo, the 7-Up, not much else. Ken Kercheval played Ansel, the 7-Up. He was Barney in Rabbit Run and Merrill Grant in Network. Tony Lobianco played Vito Lucia of the Lucia Brothers Funeral Home. He was Sal Boca in The French Connection, and we just saw him four days ago playing a cop in Serpico. Later, he's Johnny Rosselli in Oliver Stone's Nixon. Larry Haynes played Max Kalish. Just prior to this, he was Speed in The Odd Couple. Richard Lynch played Moon. This is a very early credit for Lynch, who shows up later as the cop in the first Happy Hooker film. He reunites with Tony Lobianco in Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Later, he's Ankar Moore in Death Sport. We've seen him on the show as a cyclist in the ninth configuration, as Tedesco in The Formula. Next season, he'll show up in The Sword and the Sorcerer. Later, he's Rostov in Invasion USA, Dr. Wardo in Trancers 2, Hawk Hawkins in Alligator 2, Baran in a two-part Star Trek TNG episode called Gambit. Oh, yeah. It's in the seventh season. Yeah, it's a pretty lame episode. Just realizing cyclist in the ninth configuration, is that the guy who... Stacy Keach breaks the shot glass in his hand. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of cyclists yeah, in that biker I think, bar. I think they credited all the bikers as cyclists in that movie for some reason. Bill Hickman played Bo. He's a famous stunt driver. He was behind the wheel of the more memorable car chases of film history, including Bullet and The French Connection, which were both produced by this film's director, Philip D'Antoni. We saw Hickman last as Agent Muldering in The French Connection, but he also has some stunt credits in Capricorn 1. This was his final film, but he lived until the mid-80s. There was a near miss 
on one of this film's stunts, which almost took out the entire camera crew. And I think it's possible that Hickman decided to quit while he was ahead. He was like, okay, <laughs> this was super dangerous. And I didn't want to kill people on my last movie. So let's just call this the last one. Joe Spinell played Toradano. According to IMDb, he appears uncredited as Willie Chichi in The Godfather. But his only other credit before this was as Marty in Cops and Robbers. He reprises the Chichi role in Godfather 2 and later shows up in the Mitchum Marlowe film Farewell My Lovely. He's in Taxi Driver, Rocky. He reunites with Scheider in William Friedkin's Sorcerer. So far on the show, we've seen him in The Little Dragons, Cruising, The Ninth Configuration, Forbidden Zone, Maniac, Brubaker, Melvin and Howard, The First Deadly Sin, and Nighthawks. He shows up next season in Movie Madness, Vigilante, Night Shift, Monsignor, and One Down, Two to Go. Busy guy in the early 80s, Joe Spinell. Busy, busy actor. Robert Burr played Lieutenant Haynes. He was Ralph in Tattoo and Principal in Ghost Story earlier this season. Rex Everhart played Inspector Gilson. This part was offered first to Eddie Egan, the actual cop who Popeye Doyle is based on, and who got another speaking role in that film. We've seen him now as the truck driver in Friday the 13th who takes Annie most of the way to Camp Blood, the guy who grabs her ass on the way into the truck, but he's perhaps best known as the voice of crazy old Maurice in Disney's <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Benny Marino played Festa's son. He's Lou Boca in The French Connection. Bill Fanaro played Big Bill. His only other credit was as a taxi driver in Kubrick's Killer's Kiss. John Apria played Killer. He was young Tessio in Godfather 2. We saw him last as Mario Vicari in The Idolmaker. And more recently, he was Nick Katsopoulos, father of John Stamos's Jesse Katsopoulos, on the Full House reboot, Fuller House. Tom Signorelli played minor role. He was Ataglia in Thief, and in 1980, he showed up as Moriarty in Hide in Plain Sight, and Carl Lucas, not that Carl Lucas, in The First Deadly Sin. <laughs> I think that's everything for The 7-Ups. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us tomorrow when we'll be discussing Sleeper, which IMDb describes like so. A nerdish store owner is revived out of cryostasis into a future world to fight an oppressive government. We leave you now with the trailer for Sleeper. Excuse me, Mr. Allen? Is that your new movie you're working on? This? No. I'm a clarinet player in 1973. I go into the hospital for a lousy operation. I wake up 200 years later and I'm Flash Gordon. What's the name of the film? The name of the film is Sleeper. Basically, it's an intellectual film. Most of the scenes in it are of a cerebral, almost didactic nature, and there's very little overt comedy in the film. What type of role do you play? I play a generally calm, subdued, in control leading man. It's a dignified role. You won't give me away, will you? You're a nice person. I knew I could count on you. What's Sleeper about? Sleeper's a highly charged emotional love story that's tender and romantic. I hate you, I hate you! Try not to get upset. It's between myself and Diane Keaton. I'm Luna! Luna, remember? Luna! Your name is not Luna, is it? I chose Diane because she's a very beautiful actress. I wanted to make use of the natural qualities in her face. She's kind of graceful 
and um, there's a certain animal intelligence about her that we utilize throughout the film. It's hard to believe that you haven't had sex for 200 years. 204 if you count my marriage. There's no violence in the film at all. It's a uh, quiet, easy piece of family entertainment. Will there be a special price for children? No, but anyone uh, uh, accompanied by an incoherent person gets in for half price. Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in Sleeper, a love story about two people who hate each other 200 years in the future. Thank <laughs> you.